This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello, Allah, and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. It's fashion's biggest night, and this year it went ultra camp. Yes, we are talking the Met Gala, and this could be its most epic year yet. Joining me in the studio to talk all this and more is the former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar Arabia, Louise Nichol. She is going to be here sharing her story, talking redefining fashion, and so much more. All of that is coming up right here on Life Beats on Pulse. 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. As editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar Arabia and previously Grazia Middle East, UAE based journalist Louise Nicol has overseen cover shoots with the likes of Her Highness, Her Majesty, Queen Rania of Jordan, Rihanna. Janet Jackson and Kim Kardashian West, to name just a few. She's also interviewed celebrities such as Bella Hadid, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Kira Knightley, Victoria Beckham, and so many others, including designers like Karl Lagerfeld, Tom Ford, and Donatella Versace. But after leaving the top job at Harper's Bazaar Arabia in 2018, she's now looking to redefine fashion and our relationship with it. I'm really excited to welcome to the studio the one and only Louise Nicole. Welcome. Hi, Sally. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me so and for setting me such a lofty goal. <laughs> <laughs> so great to have you, uh, Louise. You know, you're somebody who's um, can be described as somebody who's had the dream job of fashion, really. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting. I want to kind of go back and see where your love for fashion came from. I think, you know, this is something that we hear a lot. I always wanted to be in fashion, mm. you know, but where did it start with you? I am um, of a generation, shall we say, a pre-internet generation um, that would have very different influences, I think, to young girls growing up today. So when I was growing up in, in England, in a small town on the south coast, a small retirement village, there wasn't really any fashion um, fashion kind of went to die there that it was it was a style oasis shall we say so for me fashion was this elusive unattainable um, eminently cool world that I couldn't access you know as a young girl growing up and I think that's what made it so enticing for mm. me I think as I've got older as the world has digitized fashion has changed dramatically I don't know that it holds such an allure for me also possibly because I've seen all sides of it, having worked in the industry for n- nearly 20 years now, which makes me feel hideously old, but never mind. Um, so I still adore fashion. I adore clothes. I don't know that I hold it in such reverential um, regard as I did, you know, as a young girl just dying to have a puffball skirt. Right, exactly. We, we all were, you know, the yeah. balloon skirts at that time. I mean, my just... mum wouldn't let me. <laughs> we were in Laura Ashley. <laughs> What was it like when you finally started, you know, working in the world of fashion? Was it everything that you thought it was going to be? Well, I got into fashion via journalism. So I wasn't particularly good at fashion in the sense that I'm not artistic. I can't draw. Um, 
I, I, the only way I could see into it was to leverage off the skills that I have, which are essentially writing and um, using apostrophes correctly. So I became a fashion journalist and I started working for a business fashion publication, which actually was not glamorous, um, but was a great learning ground because I was interviewing Sir Philip Green, Stuart Rose, who headed up Marks and Spencer at the time. You know, as a 21, 22-year-old kid, this was incredible access and a great learning ground for, you know, much of life, really, to understand how these big, huge retail operations work in the UK. Retail is one of the most important industries in the UK. So to really be thrown in at the centre of that and understand these businesses from the inside out was a, a huge privilege. It was exceptionally hard. Right. You know, being a news reporter in the UK is tough. It's not It's not a gentle business. It's cutthroat. Cutthroat. My first boss, um, I told the story recently when I, at that job, said to me, if you write a story about anyone and a bunch of flowers arrives in the office the next day, you have not done your job. Um, you know, we weren't there to spin PR fluff. I think now, nowadays, you know, I was very privileged at Harper's Bazaar to receive many bunches of flowers. <laughs> but it, it's different. It's a consumer yeah. title rather than this was business reporting. Right. But it's important to know that, I think, and to understand what true journalism is and true truth finding and fact finding and true storytelling that isn't always the story that the interviewee perhaps wants to be told very true uh but i, I think you're somebody who's um you know an exceptional writer you tell a story very very well you know having read your articles and having you know followed you in at harper's bazaar arabia um did you feel like when you were offered this role this is the the role of a lifetime what did you think well i, I when I moved to the UAE, I um, began working for Grazia Middle East, and this was 2005, mm. um, which I have to say was a golden era in celebrity journalism. The internet hadn't hit yet, so as a weekly women's magazine, we could really take that and run with it. And Grazia really spoke to me as a brand, this Hilo mix. I love the Chanel's and the Dior's, but I shop in Zara and Topshop, you know, like everyone else. And the way that Zara, uh, sorry, Grazia brought that together really spoke to me. And also it's a mix of serious news and features that touch on some very serious issues and politics um, alongside Aren't These Shoes Cute? Yeah, that's us, right? That's that's how I speak with my girlfriends. Mm -hmm. You know, we can jump from Brexit to what concealer are you wearing? Um, so I really loved that mix. That really spoke to me. And I would say that was a very personal role for me and it was super fun I mean I remember the night that Britney shaved her head and was bashing her car in and you know I made everyone stay overnight in the office and we're on the phone to the um, paparazzi agencies in LA negotiating the prices on these pictures because then you could we held press back a bit you could then break that in print today you can't right it's on everyone's phone you can't even break it online exactly it's, you know it's on a phone but back then um 2000 and I guess that was 2007 8 we could do that it was the adrenaline rush was huge so I adored that. I was asked to become the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar Arabia, which I was incredibly honoured and privileged um, to, to move into. I wouldn't say it was anything I'd even considered. It, it's not necessarily a reflection of myself, this very, very rarefied luxury. Mm. I adore it and respect it and have really, I hope, come to understand it and appreciate it. But I wouldn't say it's how I live my 
my everyday life. I mean, I wish I did, but, um, you know, it's not. But understanding that world and those consumers, you know, was an absolutely fascinating journey and offered me so many privileged insights and experiences that I will be eternally grateful for the nine years that I spent at this magazine, which is over 150 years old as a media brand, which is you know, a great honor to be a custodian of, of that brand uh, in this part of the world. It really is, you know, it's one of the oldest, one of the most revered fashion publications in the world. And here you were at the helm of uh, the Arabic or Middle Eastern version of it. So, you know, I want to know kind of what was your vision when you were offered the job, when you accepted, okay, how did you want to present it to the world as the, you know, the Middle Eastern version of this incredible, iconic magazine? Sure. Well, Bazaar had launched two years earlier, uh, 2007, and it was launched as Harper's Bazaar Dubai. And if you think about the world at that time, it's owned by an American publishing company without roots in the region. And if you think about the mindset, perhaps, of a certain New York publishing elite and how it, it's taken a long time to bring international publishing brands into the region. If, if you know some of the history behind Condé Nast's moves here um, yeah. and various comments that were made in the past, um, Hearst, were, who, who owned Bazaar, were more advanced, and more, but they still, it's still other to them. So initially, Bazaar was launched in, with a very Western flavor. There were blondes on the cover, it was really targeting a European or American expat, mm-hmm. um, which was a strategy made by the people in charge at the time. It wasn't a strategy that I agreed with. Um, the luxury consumer in this part of the world is primarily Khaliji. Um, that's who Harper's Bazaar is targeting. Grazia is far more mixed demographics so you know that was a separate message so I thought this magazine needs to reflect its Khaliji audience it needs to reflect an Arab woman Um, and it's tough to do that because certainly back then not every woman that we approached would be photographed or interviewed there were more cultural restraints in place I would say than there are today that's hugely shifted in the nine years I was there, which thanks is Thanks to social wonderful. media as well. Thanks to social media and, and thanks to cultural reforms, I mm. think. You know, women are more able to claim their voice and have their voice. And we would never have, you know, we were very respectful of the culture. Obviously, it was my dream to photograph, you know, some high-profile Emiratis. And, and when they can't, you know, we would respect that. But... Um, you know, we started by bringing the aesthetic a bit more in line with how, where I see the aesthetic of the region, the clothes that I see Arab women loving, the makeup, the, you know, and we would use, if we couldn't use regional women for the cover, then we would use international women whose skin color, hair color, eye color, body type might reflect an aesthetic ideal. So, you know, Kate Blanchett was not going to work for me. You know, but Jennifer Lopez might. Yara Shahidi. Exactly, Yara I Shahidi, that. gorgeous. That was a great Rihanna. cover that we did last year. I mean, Rihanna was the, the dream because right. she went full, you know, Arabian princess for us. Um, that was incredible. Bella Hadid. Bella Hadid we've done twice. Um, I'm really proud, actually. Both of those covers in the years that they were published were her most liked covers on Instagram. The emerald one. The emerald one, is yeah. stunning. So that's so beautiful. She, I think she got... 
over 1.2 million likes on that on her Instagram page and none of her other covers that year garnered so many likes so I was really proud of that um, resonating among um, a global audience exactly um, but I love that yeah yeah she's someone who obviously has Palestinian roots is very passionate about her Arab background is very articulate and informed and um, very welcoming you know of her Arab fans and, and fan base and you know, she's not without nuance, okay? The girl goes out in small clothes, let's not be honest. There's controversy there. It's tricky, but she she can speak about it in an intelligent, balanced way. She's been brought up incredibly well. She sets her own standards, uh, you know, and I have a lot of respect for her. But I think that, you know, really reflects the contemporary woman. Exactly. That the contemporary woman is full of nuance. Mm. And there is so much more to just, you know, what we see in one photo, you know, of somebody or what they wear one day or how you see them presented on the outside. There's so much more to them than that, which is, uh, you know, I think that's a perfect example of that. But coming up, I want to ask you about uh, some of your favorite stories that you've done throughout your uh, career, what you've learned, some of the more surprising ones, um, and uh, all about redefining fashion. So we've got lots more to talk about right here with Louise Nickel on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse95. We are talking all things fashion with the former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar Arabia, Louise Nichols. She is here. Um, Louise, talking about you know your time at the helm of Harper's Bazaar, um, I want you to kind of talk to me about how it all evolved for you, you know, in terms of the stories that you were covering, you know, who you had, like you said, you wanted to make sure that um, the, the stories and the people that you featured were reflective of the region. Um, but, you know, what are some of your kind of favorite stories that you covered? Gosh, so many. I mean, wherever we could bring a voice or cast light on incredible stories, particularly among the Emirati or the Saudi or Kuwaiti or other GCC um, nationalities, were always felt like a major triumph, just because of the, the challenges we'd had in the early days of gaining access to women, mm-hmm. in particular, and women being able to speak and, and be vulnerable. So wherever we could, and that, honestly, that increased rapidly throughout the nine years that I was there. Um, for something the other week, I, I had to do a quick tally and in the last year of Bazaar I worked out that we interviewed and photographed 275 um, Arab women from the GCC in Levant but heavily GCC focused which felt like a a huge triumph for me because um, being able to offer these women a platform you know was a huge honor and privilege Mm. Um, and just so many incredible stories when you look at the generations it was always when we did the generation ones I loved it when you've got the grandmother and the daughter and the and the daughter you know um, and just the way that life has changed for for these generations of women and the hopes and fears that they have for the new generations was was always incredible and so specific to this part of the world so you know it was it was great to tell those stories um but yeah, so many. And I'm so grateful to everyone who allowed our 
interviewers and photographers to go prying around their homes. Because it is something, you know, because we weren't seeing that in magazines. Like you said, it was still, you know, the Western uh, types as well. Um, But, you know, something that you talk about as well is is the focus on real women. Um, And recently we've seen, you know, a lot of focus on trying to be more inclusive in fashion, whether it be about um, skin color or size or shape or, um, you know, nationality or whatever it is. Um, do you think that it's kind of evolving enough or, you know, where do you think that's going at the moment? I mean, look, I, I think it definitely is. And I think social media has played a tremendous part in allowing women who don't conform to prescribed beauty standards to stand up and own their place as, as well they should. And the Met Gala carpet was, you know, a complete reflection of that. It was such a celebration of different kinds of beauty and body size and, you know, hurrah, my Mm. goodness. (laughs) Um, There are still challenges. And I know that, you know, as a magazine, there is a commercial element to it. And there are often brand partnerships in place or financing is, you know, we have to pay for this content. Um, And often that comes via brands. And the challenge that we would often face is dress, getting brands to dress women who aren't a size whatever size skinny um, and who physically maybe don't conform to what someone in Milan or someone in Paris or someone in London or New York thinks is reflective of their brand values and I did find that frustrating I'm not going to lie because they speak the diversity message but then they may not be so keen to allow their clothes to be publicized on someone who doesn't quite tick their aesthetic boxes and I think there's a bit of double standards going on there I do think it's changing um, and it, and it can almost swing the other way and I think that's interesting to see how that plays over here did you see the recent beauty Gucci beauty campaign yes. launch with yes. the teeth mm. you know um, for anyone who hasn't seen it Gucci has relaunched its beauty brand under the genius designer Alessandro Michele and brought his spirit to the beauty line. So they're launching these lipsticks with close-ups of women's teeth, which have never seen a veneer. (laughs) Um, You know, they're yellowed, they're pointy, they're gappy, they're kind of real teeth in the UK. They're not in, in the US and over here. No one really has their teeth like that. But it's kind of this celebration of boldness and brightness and and difference individuality and difference yeah Yeah. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how that plays in this region because I think we still love a gorgeous glamorous you know lipstick and and teeth and everyone has call them chiclets uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) everyone has veneers um Exactly. Yeah. So you know, there, there's it's it's so nuanced, and there's so many different things at play, and that's what digital brings to it, right? You can try something and do it. If it doesn't work, you move on. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is that women find their voice and are able to stand up to any pressure to conform in a certain way and say, no, that's not me. You know what? Just forget about it. I'm just going to unfollow that or not look at it anymore. This is my tribe. This is my thing. This is what makes me happy. This is what I love. I'm doing that. Bye. I mean, we've got so many voices now who are kind of standing up and and talking about it. Um, Jamila Jamil, for example, um, you know, the I weigh movement that she's got going. And just even yesterday, she posted something up about doing like a high fashion shoot where, you know, she's she's quite skinny now. She didn't mm. always be. Um, but she said um, she, the dress exploded that she was in <laughs> at the seams, literally. 
Uh, and she's like, I cannot believe that these are the sizes that we're being given to wear. Yeah. Um, you know, and she's pretty small. So, you know, what what about other women who are just bigger, like, you know, five kilos more than that or whatever? It's just... Oh, the, the sizes are insane. I mean... My, most of my salary used to go on clothes because I'm not of a size that can fit into a sample size. I don't think I ever have been in my life, even at birth. So, you know, when you go to these events and things, you're expected to show up. If you're the editor in chief, you got to, you know, you got to have a bit of style going you gotta on. Do but it. I couldn't borrow anything because it wouldn't go around my ankle. Wow. So I had to spend a fortune on, <laughs> on clothes. But, you know, yeah, the, the sample size thing is, is, problematic and designers need to step that up and offer clothes in in bigger sizes and, and also when they're making clothes consider women i mean i you know we have to wear underwear most of us you know i as, we have to, i have to wear spanks as well is this okay for <laughs> thanks um it's true so it's true if you have like that. a millimeter more of yeah. any kind of fabric you're gone. <laughs> it's yeah, not going mean, to happen. You know, and I think that's why female designers at the high end of things like Stella McCartney, I love because yes. I can wear it. Yes. Um, there are, you know, I don't know that it's a, a gender thing, but so many male designers, you know, I just can't because my body is in the way. It's really interesting. You know, it's a, that's interesting. The divide kind of between female designers and male designers and kind of how they view things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to come back in just a moment uh, and we're going to be talking um, one of the interviews that kind of really changed things for you, um, Ian Griffiths yes. of Max Mara. Yeah. I want to talk about him, what you learned from him, and then we're going to get stuck into the Met Gala. Amazing. Yes. And Baby Sussex. <laughs> we need to talk Baby Sussex, Sally. We have to get it in somewhere. Yeah. We have to. He's coming. We're yes. going to see him today. I can't wait to see Me what they're going to call him, what he looks. This is going to be the world's cutest baby. Yeah. You can just bet your bottom dollar on that. <laughs> Lots more coming up right here on Life Beats. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Back with Louise Nickel talking all things fashion. Fashion and why it's important and uh, influence. And, and one particular interview that stands out for me, Louise, uh, from you is the one with a designer that um, actually is quite influential, is quite important, but probably not a lot of people know who he is. And that is Ian Griffiths. Yes, the wonderful Max Mara creative director. I mean, Max Mara is a force. It's a, it's a an enormous group of many labels. Um, but yeah, Ian is um, not, you know, he's not a Tom Ford or a Karl Lagerfeld or a name that comes top to mind. But he he is someone who, when I interviewed him, he, he really had a profound effect on me, the way that he spoke about fashion and spoke about women and the role that he sees fashion playing and, and his role as a fashion designer, he, he, um, I, th I think he's very conscious of the fact that fashion, a lot of what fashion designers create can make women, is, is quite exclusionary and it can make women feel too old or too fat or not cool enough and yet still desire it, you know, so it's this double-edged sword. It's like you want this really expensive 
fairly hideous item, but you know you're not cool enough for it, but you really want it. And <laughs> it's too small for you, but you really want it. <laughs> exactly. Know. That's that's what happens. That You know, that is what happens. Um, and he's very aware of that and, and very keen to not be a part of that cycle. Why Why do you think that is? How, how does that happen? You know, why do we want it so much, but... Is it because it's elusive? Is it because we can't have it, we want it more? Why is it? Gosh, I, I don't know. And if I knew, I'd probably be a very rich fashion designer sunning myself in mystique right yeah. now. Um, but it, the, you know, fashion does create desire and it does create a want and an urging. Um, and it does create a dream. And I think the important thing is to, as a consumer, to try and understand that and understand what it is that you're trying to dream about or trying to take hold of or trying to grasp. And is it something that's positive? Are you just trying to look like a 20-year-old blogger um, because she looks gorgeous, but it's got nothing to do with your life and your lifestyle? Mm. You know, Or are you trying to celebrate yourself and your own body and your own beauty and your own brains and lifestyle? And, you know, fashion's very clever at making us see other other people see the other and want it mm. um and it's not always for the positive i think you know i think we need to learn to look at things and maybe appreciate their beauty or appreciate the aesthetic or the message but ultimately we're about us right yeah. i'm about me i need to look at something and not try and be that other person you know i i can never be bella hadid um, as much as I wish I could, <laughs> even with the best surgeons, I don't think I can. I think that ship's long sail. So, but why should I want to be? You know, mm. I'm me. There's there's enough about me to celebrate and to bring front and center. And if brands aren't prepared to serve me, then I don't need to be in their world. I mean, I love what he actually said to you. That um, he said, I challenge fashion that makes people feel worse about themselves. And it's kind of like this moment where you go, yeah. Yeah, because so much fashion does. I mean, how how many horrible fitting room moments have you had where you think it's your size, but it's just not doing up mm. or bits are spilling out or, you know, it's just, you just feel awful. It's just cut wrong. Yeah. It's just, you know, whatever it and is. It, it's it not makes right. you feel wrong yeah. rather than the item or the garment or, you know, the poor fabric or whatever it is. It makes you feel that there's something wrong with yourself. Or and when you don't even make it to the fitting room because they don't even carry your size. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So to walk into a store and, and yeah. feel that there is literally nothing for you. You're so unimportant mm -hmm. that this you know big retail business doesn't even see you as worthy of their attention so interesting yeah and and uh, you know brands do need to wake up to that but but we as consumers need to wake up to that as well and I, I think people are you know we're taking control of it there's so much more choice there now with digital media we can find things that we like we can vote with our wallets um so do you think social media, you know, because that's something I want to know from you, like the impact of social media on fashion, is that part of it, you know, that it allows us to kind of be a lot more vocal about what we want and what we don't want? Yeah, it's, it, it's entirely a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you've got this homogenization of aesthetic and a lot of young girls who look the same, for want of a better word, with there are I, I might have concerns about the use of makeup and everyone kind of going to Kylie Jenner. Mm -hmm. So 
which is fine and she's a beautiful girl and clearly an intelligent girl surrounded by intelligent people to become a billionaire at 19 I am not knocking that I wish I was a billionaire at 19 or ever Um, but everyone thinking they have to look like that is a concern as a mother it's a concern I would have so on the one hand you've got that going on or want to be wanting to be Kim Kardashian yeah who exactly. currently looks like a Barbie doll I mean and, and that girl outfit was astounding and we don't understand how that's happening no. like. <laughs> so you've got that on one hand but then on the other hand you have got this incredible platform that allows people who do look different and are happy to celebrate that mm. and celebrate their so-called imperfections I mean why should they be imperfections they're not imperfections they're just not how Kylie Jenner looks they're just different you know everyone's different yeah um so it's it's entirely a double-edged sword and I think we just have to be very conscious of that and very aware as we're using it what we're seeing what messages are being filtered through what the prism is you know as I'm a 40 year old woman so I would hope that I have the intelligence to cut through that I need to think about how my daughter's six, so she she doesn't know what Instagram is yet. She, although she does know Siri, she, Siri is her slave. Don't worry, give her a year. You should <laughs> She'll hear be her there. ordering Siri around. <laughs> but um, you know, I I need to think about how I'm going to communicate to her about social media and the messages she receives from it, particularly around beauty and appearance. You know, I, we I do not talk about weight or diet or anything to do with size in front of her ever. Mm. Um, so I. I don't want her knowing that that's the thing that you even have to think about. I feel like, you know, that's brilliant because um, I feel like they're getting to know younger and younger now about these kind of things. You know, they're seeing social media at earlier and earlier ages um, and being influenced by that. Um, But, you know, to, to your style icons, who do you look up to when it comes to fashion and style? I mean, you know, given what I've just said, <laughs> I suppose I need to say myself, really. But I mean, I don't. Um, but I, w- I wish that I did. I wish that I was my own style icon. And I hope that one day I can be in a position where I feel that secure in myself that, you know, I, I'm entirely comfortable and feel elegant or feel appropriate or feel happy and feel empowered with what I wear. I think that's probably the dream. My daughter's a real lesson in this. She's like... She's not into World Book Day, for instance. We're on, I can't make costumes, okay? So we're on Amazon looking at all the costumes. And at at that age, my dream would have been, you know, the big Cinderella, puffy, Disney-type situation. But I'm showing her everything. No, 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 she doesn't want any of these, like, glittery, princessy dresses. She wants a lion onesie. Her name's Leo, so she loves lions. Fantastic. So, you know, she wants a lion onesie to run around school all day roaring. I I love her already. Yes, so cool. That's the great thing about being six. They don't care. We went to the beach the other day. She went dressed as an owl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only to be six again, right? Yeah. But you you just said something that I think is so key, um, you know, to kind of get to that stage for every woman to kind of get to that stage where they look at themselves as their own inspiration and as their own, um, you know, the, the best of everything that they want to be. That is exactly who they are in that moment. Yeah. Them as is. Exactly. As Dima Ayad likes to say. Yeah, the wonderful is. Dima. The She's incredible amazing. Dima. We love Dima so much. Um, but we need to get stuck into the Met Gala. We do. We speaking do. of difference and speaking of just being yourself, um, this year, of course, uh, it is really, you know, the, the fashion's night of nights. It is the one day of the year when you kind of see, you see creativity 
you see artistry, you see celebrities, you see fashion at its most, let's just say, just the most. And, you know, with this year's uh, theme uh, being camp, you know, that really is the definition of extra isn't it? Totally. What a great theme. The art of being extra, as I heard Billy Porter say. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it it's, it's genius because it wipes away any fear of sort of the bad taste criticism or being on the worst dress list. Because actually, if you're, you're on the worst dress list, you've, you've won. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You are the most extra. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Louise, who kind of uh, stood out for you? It's interesting because... Um, uh, Anna Winter, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, uh, is the one who kind of uh, sets the theme every year. And, and she was inspired by uh, Susan Sontag's essay, Notes on Camp, from uh, 1964. Um, and uh, she it's particularly this quote, Camp is a woman walking around in a dress made of three metres of feathers. I, mean, I don't know that, that that is camp. For me, that just sounds like heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe camp is heaven. That's yeah. the thing. I'd love to walk around in a dress made of three meters of feathers. If anyone oh. out there has one, they can lend me. Feathers made, um, you know, a very, very big uh, appearance, and uh, definitely in Anna Winter's outfit as well, which was actually designed by the late Karl Lagerfeld before he passed away. Yeah, look, Anna always looks very elegant and demure, and she's never going to go high camp. Yeah, you know, she's she's a woman who is her own style icon. She knows her look. She doesn't deviate from it. The hair doesn't change. The Manolos don't change. Normally, she knows herself. Yeah, the Prada pencil skirt stays. And that is like the definition of, you know, entire security. We are going to have to come back because there's a lot to talk about with Lady Gaga. Yeah, there a lot. <laughs> Quite In a fact, lot. four outfits worth to talk about with Lady Gaga. Um, we have to talk about French Montana kind of uh, celebrating the fact that it was first day of Ramadan as well as, um, you know, the Met Gala as well. Um, so many incredible style moments. And we're going to go through some of your favorites, Louise, in just a moment. It is Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Oh my goodness. So much fabulousness happened on <laughs> the night of the Met Gala. Um, as we were saying, the, the theme this year was all about going camp. And I think uh, the queen of camp has to be Lady Gaga, Louise. She does. And I think what's interesting about what Gaga did and also Zendaya is oh, <laughs> we have to get to the we'll Cinderella to dress. So these are moments that are made for video. Yes. Not just photos. Yes. And I think that's interesting. So it's no longer enough to have your, you know, Rihanna style omelette dress from <laughs> a few years ago where you've got this killer photo. The photo will go viral. But now there's so much competition to go viral. It's the video moment. So Gaga's outfit transitioned through four or five different four. look four yep. different looks. The last one was her underwear, um, if that can count. So yes, it's very sparkly kind of. Yeah, yeah so she but starts off in this enormous fuchsia. It looked like a tent. She looked like she was taking it very literally. The whole camp thing. Yeah, it was a pink tent, fuchsia, and she had these this team of this entourage around her to remove the outer layer and then an incredible sculptural black dress, Brandon Maxwell. Incredible. Which was actually divine, I have to say. It was amazing. I mean, it's performance art, really, isn't it? It's not 
Speaking of, of performance art, mm. um, we like I think the biggest and most amazing entrance of the night had to go to Billy Porter. Yes. Who was in Blonde's New York um, custom, obviously, but he looked like Cleopatra on the throne, um, kind of coming through. Yeah, being carried through by some rather muscly young men <laughs> in, in gold ev- trousers. Everybody in gold, everybody completely. He was head to toe. Yeah, I mean, um, he hit and, the brief, I would say. And then <laughs> probably the most. He probably hit the brief the most. But then, you know, he came out in these gold wings as well once he finally came off the yeah. throne. Um, and then, you know, unfurled his wings, if you like. Um, that was an incredible moment. So incredible. And again, made for video, made made for film. I don't know how we got that entourage of men carrying him in past Anna Winter because she's notoriously strict at this. There's no phones allowed, no selfies, no publicists. But, you know, maybe she bent the rules. No publicists, but you can have six bare-chested men in gold trousers. Apparently so. Yeah. Um, Zendaya, as you just mentioned, mm. this She's dress gorgeous. is unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. So she entered with her stylist, Laura Roach, who was actually in the UAE in um, October. Yes. I had the pleasure of interviewing him in Mall of the Emirates at a stylist conference. And he's an incredible guy. He's, he's really great. But he's been her long-term stylist since before she was famous. So he's he's donned the mantle of the fairy godmother. I'm not entirely sure of the she's called him. She's called him the fairy godbrother. The fairy godbrother. So, yeah. <laughs> but literally she walks in this, um, you know, what looks like a plain black dress mm. by Tommy Hilfiger. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Law Roach uh, kind of just waves his magic wand around and then suddenly... Um, you see the dress completely transform. And we have seen before dresses that are lit up. Yes. Okay, this dress starts lighting up just like it does in the movie Cinderella. It's all inspired by the movie Cinderella. Um, you know, that the, the, the LED lights kind of travel up her dress, but then the dress itself changes shape and mm. size. I have no idea how they did it's that. It's like a convertible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's incredible. I just had to keep, again, like you said, a video moment. I had to keep watching it on loop because yeah. I wanted to see how it was happening. And if you go actually on her Instagram, they do show the infrastructure. And it is oh, it is out. incredible. On Zendaya's Instagram. Yes. And, and she, she does look. She looks like... Disney's Cinderella. She really does. It's um, very cute. It's gorgeous. And she said, you know, this is uh, quite a nod to my, you know, uh, years in Disney. Um, but, you know, another one that I also loved is Broadway theatre owner Jordan Roth, who really stunned as well, again, doing the wings thing. But this time um, he kind of looked like he was wearing a gown. This is by Iris Van Herpen, who is queen of transformational fashion and, you know, innovation. Um, but, you know, he kind of looked like he was wearing just a normal gown and then he opened up his arms and then all of a sudden it was a picture of an entire theatre. Incredible. Like, it's like another video moment where you just, you have to see it unfolding to just kind of go, yeah. whoa. It was quite nice for the guys to get a turn because, yes. you know, normally they're stuck in a tuxedo. Right. Um, they don't normally get the chance to express themselves. So. Exactly. And I, you know, they really showed up. I loved Harry Styles. I this is one that divided people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's subtle, but for me, it just what he just looks. I I think because I'm a child of the '90s, maybe, and it's that new romantic Spandau yes, ballet. Yes, you know, he's got the one pearl earring. It's a little of, bit of makeup. This interesting um, kind of um, uh, again blouse ca- camp romantic. Zorro look. Yeah, and it's it's eminently wearable. I might you know, whereas some of those others, you're not going to walk down. How Harry Styles looks is 
probably how a lot of guys today might like to look or might Possibly. like to dress. And, of know, course, I he, kind of applaud it. Yeah, he He's was hot. He, he looked all right. He was co-chairing, uh, actually, this particular Met Gala ball along with the designer of his outfit, Alessandro Michele of Gucci. Uh, Gucci made it a very, very big um, impact, really, we can say, in this particular ball. Um, but can I just say... Uh, how much I love the fact that Serena Williams, who also co-chaired, mm. uh, was wearing kicks with her Versace gown. She, well, not just any kicks. She's, she's wearing the kicks. kicks. <laughs> the the kicks, kicks behind her sponsor. Of course. <laughs> I love Serena Williams. I have so much time for her. I mean, she's a, now she's a role model. She's right? a queen. Um, and if Nike's sponsoring you and they're going to make you some fluoro yellow trainers sorry I'm British I say trainers to wear on the pink carpet <laughs> then he, she's she's going to be dancing all night in those she's not going to have any oh, blisters is she we've run out of time we've run out of time I know I know there's so much more to talk about everyone look at Lapita. Google Lapita. yes Lapita Nyong'o yeah. and Janelle Monet. yes the eyes yeah you have it with her incredible and the chandelier we didn't even do Kim Kardashian my goodness oh, oh I know Google it so my much husband was to. confused I made him Google it he was like, I don't understand <laughs> How's that happened? I know we're all kind of going. How did yeah. that happen? But yeah. uh, and it was an incredible Miraculous. night. I'm so glad you were here to talk us through it, Louise Nichols. So much fun. Thanks, Sally. It's been an absolute pleasure. What a joy. That's it for us here on Life Beats. We'll be with you again tomorrow from 10 a.m. Have a fantastic day. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.